So hi and welcome to Wemcast, everybody. I'm here today with colleague and friend uh, Scott King. So Scott is a fellow paramedic uh, uh, colleague of mine, and we've done a lot of work together um, with World Extreme Medicine prior to now. But um, what I thought I'd do is, Scott, let you introduce yourself uh, to the guests. Uh, morning, mate. Good morning, everybody. Um, thanks for uh, inviting me and a great opportunity to have this chat and discussion and uh, just share with the world kind of where we are and some of the conversations we've been having um, privately of just catching up and uh, seeing where we are rural versus kind of uh, mainstream city. Um, I have been in healthcare since um, 2002. I started in secondary care uh, originally um, before um, joining pre-hospital care world sort of uh, in the career route of uh, ambulance care assistant all the way through um, and have uh, held many roles in the last 17 years. Um, I've done sort of hazmat, joined heart necessarily uh, off the back of that. Um, I've been a, an ambulance officer, duty manager, a control room. Uh, and I'm now uh, having spent four great years uh, heading up the Trust's regional motorcycle unit. Uh, for the family, I've moved to uh, a North Devon area and um, just settling in, uh, finding my feet again uh, back on front line. Um, which has come at an interesting time, having kind of done lots of jobs uh, where I've been uh, either in incident rooms um, and only la last week uh, was in the incident room for COVID for the trust. Um, and it's funny how we've dealt with lots of incidents in the past, whether that's IT issues, uh, whether that's uh, sort of CAD, uh, which I know my colleagues in London have more than uh, experienced of their issues with CAD. Um, even back to kind of like the Olympics, um, obviously we've had uh, Novichok uh, in Salisbury, which uh, is in the, the region. Um, so we've managed to draw on quite a lot of lessons learned internally, as well as kind of featuring and picking up on the national picture. Um, and that's something I've been able to bring and sort of hopefully share a little bit with my colleagues on the road um, in the North Devon area that maybe are a little bit protected um, from some of the goings on, um, some of those lessons, if they haven't made their way through and, and shared. Fantastic, Scott. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned quite a lot there, actually, about the CAD, so the computer-aided dispatch system, um, and, you know, when that either breaks down or, indeed, when there's, 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 there's an excessive demand uh, versus, like you said, some of the chemical, biological and viral um, pandemics, which is uh, what we're in the middle of now, um, which is really interesting, mate, but a really varied um, career um, by all accounts. Um, so just before we deep dive into sort of how you're finding the rural experience now and the demand profiling now in North Devon, just just looking back slightly at where you've where you've come from, Scott. Um, <clears throat> which um, you, you've held a few leadership, quite a few leadership roles across your career in in um, in, in the ambulance service. Which 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 of those leadership roles do you think you you fundamentally had the most control to change and adapt things um, on the ground? Um, I think my last role, where um, I had that mix of being able to respond on a motorcycle. Uh, be that frontline, first-line management of a, a team of staff, um, but also having a unique sort of exposure to having to juggle the political kind of world of senior management and uh, staff, uh, kind of understanding the sort of executive roles of the trust and kind of where their pressures uh, and demands are. And trying to learn in kind of like the, the last four years kind of how to dance and juggle between the two which can be quite a challenge especially if uh your desire is to be quite an innovative um and proactive uh, and outward facing and kind of bring on new areas of practice or development um i think you need to have the full breadth and understanding of kind of what the political and sort of social economic sort of pressures are on the trust and the health service as a whole and learn to pick your fight so I think for me it was uh, an interesting challenge uh, to kind of look after staff and remain operational and try and uh, 
pick which elements they wanted and kind of we wanted as a team to kind of push forward uh, and learn how the best way to kind of make friends and influence people. Mm, indeed, indeed, absolutely. And that sounds that, that sounds um, really interesting, Scott, in a number of ways, really. Um, so w- one of my questions would be from there, from, from listening to what you just said, uh, <clears throat> I know you've done quite a lot of work with other sort of co-agencies as well, um, along with the Amulet Service. Is there anything you've, you've brought back from some of these other agencies into the Amulet Service, either from a mindset perspective or indeed from a leadership and or managerial perspective that you see working with some of these co-agencies um, in the security and or military world uh, that, you, that you've been able to bring back into the pre-hospital care um, world? Um, yeah, so I've, I've been very fortunate um, sort of as a civilian to kind of be invited in and, and have guest lectured um, for staff that are pre-deploying uh, to either um, hostile environments or, or sort of uh, conflict zones. Um, and it's something that I always try and kind of bring my NHS and clinical hat forward and, and don't try and make out or pretend I'm something that I'm not. And, you know, I'm not the tallest of chaps. I'm not the biggest of built chaps. And I think it just wouldn't work for me to try and portray or pretend I was something that I was not. So um, it's interesting because, as, as you know, um, I've come back from Tunisia um, working with uh, a group uh, a few humanitarian aid workers that are working and operating in Libya. Um, and it's interesting to adapt the principles of the NHS uh, to staff that have either um, have got no understanding or experience of what that actually is on the ground, um, but also kind of bring that into play when you're trying to get them to work and operate in some of these hostile conflict zones. And deliver good care in what isn't always seen as, as good places mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely and 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 like I say translate those concepts um to to change things down on the ground um in quite a dynamic situation and that's 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 fascinating actually scott so um so so just looking at some of those dynamics because one of your hats that you've worn and, and that you that you wear when i've i've been working with you is is as an educator um how have you translated some of those lessons learned in sort of fundamentally the the, the best or indeed the, the the most efficient way um to to these staff because i i know with me you've done a lot of simulation workshops plenary group discussion do you feel you get there's, there's more leverage as an educator there's more leverage in a certain modality of of teaching um i i guess as ambulance staff we're always uh kind of in our element uh as characteristics that that work in in this field uh to enjoy the challenge of being uh dynamic and and having to think on your feet i think most uh ambulance staff can probably relate to that and kind of think back to a moment of their own practice or moments in their job where they've got a real buzz or satisfaction and it's normally prayer things uh, are unpredictable or unplanned or unexpected and they are challenged and tested and pushed to respond in that way um, and I think for me uh, who you know I'm, I'm enjoying my practice as, as much as I did sort of from the day I joined um, try and bring that element into my teaching um, and some of the best scenarios that you can plan for are the ones that uh, respond and adapt to the environment and the students. And I know when we've talked together, I always start with kind of trying to find out this, these are the objectives of the course, but actually, you know, we've, we're all humans and what is it that's brought us here to the, this sort of learning today? And what is it that they'd like to get from the course? And then reflect back on that at the end of the course and, and try as a sort of a facilitator to address their individual kind of needs or kind of, demons that they have that wouldn't always necessarily be covered in course content um, which makes for a really sort of interesting dynamic course because you've got your course program set um, and the challenge then for me is the education the facilitator working with the group is to really draw on our breadth of experience um, and not stand up and try and confess to be the font of all knowledge and, and, and I think educators that try and do that um 
will eventually kind of become unstuck or unfounded and, and students can see through that. Um, but actually, you know, drawing upon the experiences from people in the, in the room and certainly when it comes to the simulation, um, we've chatted about how we're going to run a scenario and we get the bare bones. Um, but being able to adapt and then capture it afterwards about what we've learned is, you know, just as exciting now for me as kind of turning up to the big jobs that we've, we've both done um, and going that that really didn't go in the direction that I was expecting it to. And being dynamic and responding to the actions means that you get a far more detailed quality simulation. Um, and whether that's, you know, working with a femme doctor, you know, working with air crew, advanced paramedics, doctors, med students, you know, paramedic students, technicians, um, you'll always come up with something that you weren't expecting. And, and the people that, you know, you thought you kind of understood um, through the course come back with a curveball of, of some new way of, of moment thinking that you go, actually, that's something. And that's how new ideas develop and generate and the course is, is never really the same. Yeah. from one call next yeah so, so um, scott yeah sorry sorry to cut across you just to say um you know some of the simulation i've run with you scott some of the the fidelity of simulation i've run with you it's, it's not only changed the game for me um i think what it's done is it's really um it's really brought home that the devil is in the detail and, and actually bringing students to it to the most real version of a an event be it a blaster ballistic event a terrorist event or um, or just a, a trauma, a, a, you know, a single traumatic injury to, to one limb, but bringing that home just uh, and what I've learned through you and through 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 making it as real as possible. I know we brought your 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 uh, we brought your child, Toby, into one of the pediatric courses, didn't we? And the final scenario was actually, you know, um, as a sick child, we, we had Toby right there. Um, and you know, and, and sort of thrust him into one of the participants' arms, and you know, you've got your delightful son who's who's, who's happy in in anybody's arms. But just to bring that realness and that and that fidelity to life, I I, I genuinely can't say I've done that as, as well with other people as I have with you. And I, I definitely learned through that that actually, if you run simulation in, in that vein, and and be prepared to slow it down and pick out, like you said, the learning points, you can actually really unpick not only people's fears and directly address them but also learn yourself about just navigating the way to debrief it how to pick out the best bits and also how to how to give them the most real version of, of an experience I, th I think that like you said the devil is in in the detail and i think um it, it takes a lot um of, of bandwidth and experience to be able to really kind of finesse it. And it's something that I'm, you know, still practicing and, and it's only kind of in the last couple of years, my comfort zone of kind of where I know I can take things and how I can respond and that the tools that I've got um, are really kind of becoming, becoming, um, you know, finessed in, in that. And, um, and I think for me, it's the, the lead up and the preparation, the, the background to the scene is now almost for me more important that I'm thinking about making sure the story um, and the lead-in is actually um, reflective of what the actual injury and clinical work that I want to be done um, and see. Uh, and I think you do end up needing to be almost like producer, director, and, and I think anything you can kind of commit to the storyline going in, and I was just saying about even more on a, on a week's course in you know, in Tunisia, we ran uh, actually that ran that storyline ran for a whole week where you know they are a set group of NGOs. They've got a mission, and each day the theory actually gives them the skills to build up on that mission that they're we, we're testing them on, and then we'll go and break into scenario world of actually testing them on the theory that they've just learned. Yeah. Um, but then the next scenario builds on that again. And, um, and I think dripping them into that sort of storyline, it kind of helps to sort of suspend their disbelief of simulation. Um, even if you don't have the film set budgets of, uh, you know, dealing with, you know, real high fidelity actors uh, and injuries. But um, luckily, that's something that we could draw upon. And again, that, that just goes to emphasize the detail even more. But 
I think you need to have the structure of what it is, what your learning objectives are, you know, and, and still be true uh, and honest to the, you know, educational principles of what is it that we're trying to achieve, what are we trying to learn, um, but then actually allowing for that free learning to take place within the scenario, and, and that comes from investing in the actual storyline of it. And I know you and I have chatted about it's an interesting world and people come because they want to play. And sometimes that's a bad thing and sometimes that, that's a good thing. I think we need to acknowledge that um, people best learn when they're enjoying themselves mm-hmm. uh, and, and having fun. And that's why, you know, we always have smiles on our faces when we teach together. And hopefully that comes across and the students kind of have that same enjoyment. Yeah as we get from teaching. Um, but I'm keen that the courses that we run or I kind of work to are, are not courses just to satisfy people's desire to play. Um, and I know there are providers out there that do that and will get absolutely rave reviews, um, but they're not always the same educational sort of foundation and grounding um, and sound principles that actually... I want to kind of work towards. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree, Scott. I think you've got to meld uh, the two really, you know, that sense of play and that sense of enjoyment, but with actually some robust and some steadfast um, uh, ILOs, so intended learning outcomes, so that they do come away with something and change change pace, change modality, so that people feel like they 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 changing gears, interacting with different parts of their brain. You know, you can be in a discussion one minute and or a debate. You can be in a simulation the next. You can be in a workshop the next, and then you could potentially be in a lecture the next. But it's 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 just it's changing pace so that people aren't necessarily sitting back and just letting it all wash over them, that they're interacting with that, with that information, that, that knowledge. Um, so just to change uh, tack slightly, uh, Scott, and just de- do a little bit of a deep dive on your, on your um, EPRR experience, so your emergency planning resilience and response um, experience and your emergency planning background, because I know you've got a diploma in emergency planning. What, um, what has that... Is there, is there anything that's informed and or taught you about the current situation, um, either from a from from a demand profiling perspective or indeed from 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 a contingency and um, and planning perspective? Is, is there anything that you that you can extrapolate out from that? Um, I think um, the, the first thing that comes to mind really is is kind of like the reporting lines and structures that we have certainly in the UK, um, and then wider experience of kind of working and, and understanding things like the World Health Organization and whether that's um, through um, high consequence um, uh, illnesses um, and certainly things that we've prepared for in the past. But um, pandemic flu has been on the National Risk Register, you know, for a long, long time. I think when we, if you cast your mind back to the days of when we saw H1N1 and sort of um, avian bird flu, um, I think we started to, and it was declared a pandemic then, we don't, we didn't see the uh, severity of illness um, as we're now seeing uh, with COVID-19. Um and there were some lessons uh, that we learned from that, and certainly um, the pandemic card of how we triage and, and cast calls uh, and interrogate calls. Um, and that's something that we've also put into practice when we were looking at um, our management of snow um, that um, hit us quite hard um, with the beasts from the east. Uh, and these are all things that rely on the same sort of reporting structures that we're using at the moment um, for COVID. So um, I'm not directly part of the EPRR team now. Um, But saying that, um, you know, within the last week, I've I've been down into our trust um, incident support cell. Um, It's uh, supporting the trust response. And, you know, the reporting lines and the reports that we're using now have been the same that we would use for other um, critical and severe emergencies and I think that gives a degree of confidence um, you know we're talking to people that I talked to uh, when we were looking at hospital closures or uh, tracing of contacts or equipment from uh, Salisbury Novichok or uh, you know when we had people stranded because of snow 
Um, it's funny that you're talking around the same times of year. I've made jokes that, you know, I'm in the control room with an Easter egg in front of my desk. And that's not the first time that we've dealt with uh, incidents of a serious nature around the Easter period. Mm. Um, so um, I think having the confidence that, um, you know, the, of our ability to data collect what's happening. And so for us at the moment to bring it relevant to COVID-19, you know, everybody that we're using sort of PPE, you know, making sure that we're collating that information so we've got a good understanding of uh, what our usage is, uh, where our uh, pressures are, uh, what particular PPE is being used uh, over others. Uh, so that really needs, you know, boots on the ground, reporting and feeding into that and then a collating system. Uh, and that's what we're doing. Yeah. And that's being fed back to... Um, to the regional uh, public health um, areas um, and our sort of request for PPE is, is based on that and we can then forecast and model and plan with kind of what our anticipated demand will look like yeah. and then look, make that into some realistic figures of, okay, what are our realistic expectations of PPE usage on different demand profiles? Yeah. Um and we're going a lot further than we ever did for avian bird flu. Um, our response is completely different in regards of what we're required to do um, clinically. Um, so it's it's an interesting time. And, and I think the response that we're doing is, is all but mirrored uh, across all of the ambulance service trusts. Um, our demand and pressure may be different. Um, depending on the regional service that you're working for, but kind of the goings-on behind the scene is actually kind of all feeding into a national picture. We've got the National Ambulance um, Control Centre set up um, in the West Mids that um, all the trusts will be feeding into, and obviously they will then be feeding that into central government. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and like you said, that that reporting system is is, is good for modelling for for both future pandemics and lessons learned from 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 what we what we're experiencing now. So, just from a demand profile perspective, have you seen? I know we were talking about before. Have you that you've seen a concurrent shift in activity and in occupancy bed space? in hospital but also the demand in pre-hospital care have, have you seen that shift sort of um de-escalate or, or indeed is, is is there is there much in the way of uh demand at the moment either in hospital or out of hospital for you um i think uh, for, for where we were you know think back several weeks ago with certainly what the scientific advice was sort of saying for warning um and some of the modeling that we were looking at i think it was only right that the whole uh, central government and health system, NHS England, PHE, uh, prepared us, the community trusts and the acute trusts, uh, for what was looking to be like an, an unprecedented uh, demand, an overwhelming demand on the service. Um, and, and I'm not sure if we captured before, but we were just saying about war being a great instigator for change and learning and development. And sadly, you know, it, it's almost, being similarly to a war on the pandemic of COVID-19 and um, sadly with that has been opportunities to either change of appetite of risk or through necessity um, and uh, we in the early stages didn't really see too much change then we started seeing uh, the predicted worried well uh, where our confirmed cases were relatively low disproportionate to the numbers of calls that we were certainly receiving in the southwest i think um that uh was difficult and a challenge because there was lots of different policies and there was lots of uh, i think social media jokes within the ambulance service world in particular about the number of changes of policies and procedures daily you know almost as we were trying to quickly adapt to, to how we needed to look after our staff and how we need to look after each other and respond to our patients um that gave us a good opportunity certainly in the southwest where, where i'm at at the moment um to almost practice and drill our infection prevention control procedures about our level twos level threes um and understand a little bit better than we maybe did before about aerosol generated procedures and um levels of protection that we were required for and when but in answer to your question on kind of demand, we, we saw 
um, as the pandemic's gone on and, and the media have, have really sort of focused certainly on London, where the numbers um, I know went through the roof, certainly for LAS and their call volumes, you know, from their norms of sort of 4,000 a day up into sort of like 11,000, I think, at one point, um, mm. I, I'm right to understand. Um, our numbers and demand profile has sort of reduced slightly, but what we have seen is a change in our acuity going up. Um, and I think that's something that's reflected similarly in the acute trusts across the region, broadly speaking, um, speaking to colleagues in different areas and working with, with different acute trusts and even kind of our GP partners um, and out of, area, um, out of hours. Um, they've seen um, uh, a lessening in pressure for them. Um, we've got good bed occupancy at the moment, which, you know, if we are to see peaks and high acute patients, as we were predicting, you know, we're in a good position to respond to them at the moment. Mm. Um, but that does beg the question of where have all the patients gone that were calling us this time last year, uh, that were calling a few weeks ago. Um, and I think it just goes to prove, actually, we are victims of our own success, certainly in the ambulance service and um, it's somewhat in A&E, uh, where we will respond most of the time and see people and are very good at um answering their calls for help and uh, putting things in place to look after them um which is good for patient outcomes um but it's not always the most appropriate resource to sort of meet that need whereas at the moment um a and and certainly itus um are in a good position to respond and and deal with any influx should that come um, and we can talk about should that wave um, come in some of the uh, outer London regions um, but I think the main thing we've noticed is um, certainly a, a drop in activity um, operational responses you know our normal metrics of call performance are, are, are doing actually quite well because our resourcing call profile is matched for once at the moment as opposed to being overwhelmed um, and a word that would normally be described with the ambulance service is, is relentless, um, whereas we're seeing a difference at the moment. Um, some of that isn't just because of numbers calling in. Some of that is because we've had to change and we're um, putting a lot of emphasis and resource in our clinical hubs, um, looking at um, preventing calls coming out getting a response and some of that's obviously with the introduction of the pandemic card for the computer-aided dispatch uh, that's recently sort of uh, been instigated nationally I believe um, and some of that is just some of the work that each individual local ambulance service is doing to look at their hear and treat which has always been an increasing area of interest for the ambulance services as they sort of try and grapple with their demand on the service um, of limited numbers of resources that we do have. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. Absolutely. So, just looking at those numbers and that shift in in demographics and that maybe like de-escalated uh, demand at the moment. Do you think there's maybe a small sliver of people that should be calling us or that should be in any that aren't necessarily doing so? Because I know the service, the policy at the moment in in London is that uh, relatives can't come to hospital. So, I know I've seen a card array of patients maybe a little bit too late in the in the in the patient journey actually that should have gone. And then ended up as uh, uh, as cardiac arrests, um, but they didn't go because they couldn't have someone with them, um, and 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 that probably was the time to catch them, uh, prior you know prior to them falling off the cliff in, into a into a sort of a, a, a decompensated state. Do you think that those cardiac patients exist where where you are at the moment, and and do you think that they they're kind of being being kind of not being captured in the hot in in in, in what, what what you'd normally see no i think definitely i think regardless of kind of like your uh viral numbers um i think um because it's a national lockdown and it's national guidance it's national procedures i think the same unintended consequences will apply uh, no matter where you are um our acute is in the same way following sort of phe reducing footfall um and aren't allowing um immediate kind of care and obviously there are some exceptions to that and I think that's worth important um, certainly because they feature around sort of labour maternity and children 
um, where, you know, and uh, people with um, complex health needs that need and rely upon carer. And I think that's important to kind of emphasize and get out there. Um, and we, I'm seeing rumblings that that is beginning to be looked at on a case by case situation. Uh, as opposed to a blanket no and I, I know that people that um, are palliative or um, are sadly likely to die um, are being allowed um, in certain cases um, relatives and I think it is right that we just take an individual approach uh, for that patient and the clinical environment where they are to kind of make that assessment on risk um, and exposure on transmission as well. Um, but with regards to kind of those unintentional, unintended consequences of, of certainly the lockdown, um, I know um, I saw a, a lady um, a couple of weeks ago. She was um, treated with PPE because of respiratory symptoms um, as a suspected COVID case, um, although there were some other differentials and the other differentials were probably more likely for us in our management pre-hospital. Um, and I think the lockdown and isolation probably uh, meant that she didn't call for help. Mm. She self-diagnosed and self-attributed her shortness of breath and cough to pneumonias that she'd previously had. Um, and in actual fact, um, it turns out that it, it, she had a PE and um, it was too far gone by the time we arrived. Um, that Although that she was transported, um, you know, it was something that sadly resulted in her losing her life. Um, and I think there are similar cases, maybe not with necessarily PEs, but other illnesses and injuries where people are managing at home when they necessarily should be kind of seeking that help. Mm. But um, I think the numbers that I'm kind of seeing and hearing from, they are few. Um, we're certainly seeing a greater benefit from people self-managing and seeking alternative support um, and not attending A&E. Um, hence why we've got really good capacity in our A&E departments at the moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So just to pivot slightly, Scott, and look at um, a different aspect of, 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 the, of the system. Um, <clears throat> just groundswell amongst staff. Is, is there a general, do you, do, you, do you sense there's a general fear amongst staff uh, in regards to COVID-19 or do you feel like staff feel sort of, prepared and or willing to 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 go and treat the community and the agp producing procedures do, do, is there do, do you sense it a tangible fear or, or or not so um i i think there wouldn't be anybody that sort of is doing our job at the moment that at some point in the recent history has not necessarily been feared but certainly had concern for what's going on i think we're all human um and all of us at some point will have probably taken a moment to reflect and think about actually kind of the risks and what what we are doing um and i think that's something that's probably as our awareness understanding and familiarity with our response under sort of the covid19 pandemic as um develops something that we've probably better discussed and aired and, and looked at amongst ourselves and shared uh, in discussion um, which is only benefit to help with with those fears and apprehensions um, I don't consider myself really doing too much out of the norm in regards job wise um, the 909 calls will come I will receive them in the same way and I'm responding and seeing patients and making judgment calls and assessments of where they're best uh, looked after and, and if needs to be putting things in place. Things are a little bit more difficult to kind of put packages of care in at home. Um, but things are, you know, as people are getting used to the procedures, you know, in the community and they're coming up with ways to overcome things and difficulties and challenges, we are seeing that sort of free up a little bit more um, and almost like the new norm developing. Um, and there's been lots of lots of discussions on PPE and um, I don't really kind of want to get drawn into the, the political sort of twos and fro's on that. I think um, my personal view, if I'm going to come out really, will be um, I have concerns over the aprons that are recommended for level two, which we're using across the board for all our patients now. Um, as we know 
the numbers of cases in the community are higher than we probably fully appreciate, certainly because of the lack of testing at the moment. Um, but I think for me, just the, the apron is probably, you know, a standard apron is, is maybe sufficient in acute care settings. But, um, you know, my colleagues and I almost feel like flagpoles. You know, we're working outside. The jobs are still going on outside. We're not just dealing with medical illness inside homes. Um, even just earlier, you know, dealing with uh, a fall off a ladder, a DIY incident outside. Yeah. Um, the, the aprons aren't necessarily the best thing for us. Um, and there's probably a whole host of reasons why that hasn't really been fully appreciated and discussed and, and looked at. I certainly know a few trusts in the country are looking at the games and have introduced games. Um, that's just not something we're looking at doing at the moment. Um, with regards to the face protection, I think we were in the early stages going to level three protection early when it wasn't necessary and i think it was important that where people had an understanding of that you know myself we try and educate and inform staff about the the levels of protection and when they are used because otherwise i think we would have depleted our own stocks of uh, ffp3 level three face protection um, if we were going to use them as a bog standard approach to all cases um, and I think it's right that we take this dynamic decision making um, AGP there's obviously some discrepancies and differences between the guidance from sort of PHE uh, Public Health England and the World Health Organization certainly around the areas of contention that kind of come up in discussion are nebulization and CPR um, but on the whole, certainly I've seen a lot of the fear dissipate, I think, over the last week. Um, I think just as people get more confident and comfortable with working and making the call, I think opting for level two for all patients does simplify things in some way um, and gives you one less thing to think about and makes it very clear when you need to then escalate to level three. Um, but... On the whole, you know, you know, we're still humans. I don't feel like I have some superhero ability to fight off COVID. Um, I certainly don't feel like a hero in what I'm doing. Like I said, it's a normal day in that sense. And that's something I think I would echo with my colleagues. Um, I think the heroes are probably uh, the families who we leave behind when we go to work who maybe are not medical and maybe don't have the appreciation of the decision making that we do and the steps that we take to protect ourselves and our families and the public and and I think that's probably a difficult thing for the families who have to kind of wave goodbye to staff and um, are only left with the cycle of the news to kind of really inform their decisions and fears and and, and I think for me that's a bigger issue for staff having that worry at home um, is probably playing a bigger sort of mind uh, trouble than, um, than necessarily responding to the patients. Yeah. So to your point, uh, Scott, I find it really interesting what you were saying about uh, pre-hospital cases, you know, normal pre-hospital care goes on every day. You know, people are still having a heart attack, still falling off ladders, still um, having business as usual, really, what we normally respond to. But also to your other points as well around families and around leaving families at home, you know, the psychological resilience that, that, that families, I mean, I know you've got a young family, you've got two young, lovely young, young twins, you've got little Toby as well. Well, um, you know, having to leave your wife at home and, and and her having to sort of, I guess, you know, be there day in, day out um, and, and become, it's quite socially isolating. What I've certainly seen in, in London is a real prevalence of uh, and rise in mental health issues, actually, uh, both from a social isolation point of view. Uh, for, for people without families but also people with families as well which haven't really got the social support around uh, around them um, have you have you seen a rise in mental health or or, or felt the pinch of or, or uh, of mental health um in in, in service down there um i think with regards to our sort of patient numbers that we're seeing i think uh we've seen sort of um a drop in numbers over the last couple of weeks and whether that's because they are being managed in a different way from the hubs 
um, their actual call for help that's coming through the 999 system um, is less at the moment. Um, saying that today, I've, you know, I have seen my sort of first flurry of cases where that it's been due to social isolation that's kind of been their primary issue. Um, I think today is an interesting day as we await the update uh, with regards to the deadline of the lockdown and whether that will or won't continue. Um, it's looking and feeling like it, it's most likely to continue. I think that's um, a milestone, I think a psychological milestone that people will have waited um, and got to in their heads as a resilient sort of deadline point. And I think when we pass that and, you know, if, if we're to continue for a, you know, a further period of time, I think that will then see a change um, and we will begin to see probably more calls for the effects of social isolation, uh, whether that's physical health um, that's taken an effect um, or that sort of psycholo psychological sort of mental health well-being. Um, and, and with that is, is like, you know, the staff that, that we work with as well, as well um, who um, already kind of maybe having um, things that they're just sort of ticking along and coping with. And this is maybe sort of one of those final sort of pressures um, in their sort of their box that um, I'm sure all paramedics and ambulance staff can relate to that have the, the box of their, uh, their own mental health. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I think one of the things I've talked about uh, elsewhere is sometimes a real absence of self-care amongst staff. Uh, I, I, I'm guilty of it as well, too, if I'm being honest, but it's just an absence of you know, sleeping well, eating well, exercising regularly, um, getting out to see friends, because I, I almost think it's, it's, it's equally as important what you do on time off, away from work, as what you do when you're at work, because uh, if you can't, if you don't rest adequately, when you're away from work, when you come back to work, you're, you're never, you're never actually able to give a hundred percent. Nor are you able to necessarily function to your, to your, um, uh, at capacity. Um, and, and have you seen, have you seen sort of a, an absence of, of self care either in the, either in the general population of patients or indeed with, 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 um, with staff at work? So I think I'm, I'm really fortunate that, um, the staff that I'm working with at the moment are absolutely, you know, some of the best that I'm, I've ever worked with in my, in my career um, because they seem to have really grasped this concept of, of looking out for each other and, and looking after each other. And um, that's something that um, sadly had kind of, because of the pressure, certainly in inner cities where the, the pace and workload was increasing and the time on station to do the informal handovers, the informal debriefing and the laughing and joking, those times were just gone. Um, now, I'm not saying that there were any more opportunities, um, certainly in, in the sort of North Devon area, but um, I'm certainly seeing, you know, remnants of past times where staff genuinely took a, an interest in a care for each other and um, socialise and, and I think that is a good resilient factor for the, the staff that certainly I'm, I'm here working with at the moment. Um, patients wise I, I think like I said that three week isolation lockdown deadline I think people will see that probably as a, a mental sort of hurdle and it will be interesting to see how people in the community sort of will deal with that. Um, sadly, you know, the people that we come across vary so greatly in their sort of understanding and ability to comprehend with what's going on. Um, the 84-year-old I saw today had very little uh, insight as to the dangers of just a simple walk down to the shops and, and the encounters that she was going to sort of come across. Um, but then equally, she's isolated with no family, staying at her own house. Um, her phone's not working. And actually, what is that risk for the greater good? And I recall from sort of my early days of, you know, sort of like a response manager when, you know, dealing with a common day fire alarm in a nursing home and, even just making decisions on evacuating a nursing home, you know, officers will tell you, you know, it's something you avoid at all costs because we know the vulnerable population, you know, you add dementia in that as well. Just the fact of the move, an emergency move, unscheduled move and evacuation of the place, 
could be enough to actually be the greater risk, mm. not necessarily the reason why you're evacuating in the first place. And if we turn that on our heads, almost like an evacuation, that isolation is equally just as risky. And, um, you know, we'll have those unintended consequences that we mentioned. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So as we just come into land uh, on, on the conversation, a couple of questions really, just from your perspective. Um, one question I'd like to sort of pose to you really is if you, if you had a message for the community of uh, plus 200,000 uh, doctors, paramedics and nurses that, 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 that follow World Extreme Medicine and that, that listen to this, is there, is, there a, is there any kind of message you, of positivity and or encouragement you'd like to give to, uh, to people out there? I think the first of all is that the, the NHS is, is receiving uh, a lot of recognition and a lot of praise uh, for what we are all doing. Um, and we are all just small cogs in the, the biggest machine, the biggest employer in the world um, that is unrivaled internationally. Um, despite the gripes and grumbles um, of the politics of Brexit, of uh, you know, our scientists and our pharmaceuticals and, and what the future lies ahead is we still have and are able to draw upon some of the best minds um, in the world. Um, we're taking a very pragmatic approach. Um, we're, we're looking at data, we're constantly reviewing um, the, the staff in ITU, some of the reports and the teleconferences I've been party to, um, they really are pulling together and sharing best practice and it's almost like the Herculean war efforts of, you know, digging deep. Um, we are all in it together um, and that camaraderie across the whole sort of NHS as a whole. Um, whereas once there may be sort of silos or sort of uh, rivalries, those have all been set aside and it's it's one common goal at the moment and that's just to get through this and we will get through that so my, my message to the public is is listen to your health providers listen to those government briefings and and be guided by those um i think sadly you know our death numbers will probably stay high um as around the current numbers um and marginally see an increase in those um the certainly the work that's going on in the community with care homes will probably be the new front line as we progress forward and i think there's some um difficult conversations that we will probably be hearing about how we will manage those and what's the best things for groups and individuals of patients in those care settings um but um the work that everyone's doing by staying at home is having an effect. Um, it's certainly, you know, the Southwest has got, you know, luckily some of the lowest numbers, some of that's geography, some of that is um, maintaining that social distance in an adherence to the self-isolation. Um, so listen to those government rules and kind of go with them. Uh, for my colleagues, uh, I've never been prouder to work amongst you all. And um, thank you for everything that, we're doing together really and that that would kind of be my message oh scott that's fantastic that's absolutely fantastic absolutely absolutely and just to come into land um on one point you made earlier scott around just around sort of education really and just around how to get the best out of people because I'm, I'm mindful um and i'm speaking to people all the time that have finished their degrees early their medical degrees early they've, they've come out of university early as paramedics they've finished in their third year and been pulled out there's a lot of firemen here and military personnel which are retraining at the moment what would you say to people that have, have finished med school early finished paramedic science early and or, or other domains of practice to come across just to sort of to reassure them at, at, at this time? Um, sadly, I don't think there's been a better opportunity to ever ask for help than there is at the moment. I think the willingness to help anybody within the health service at the moment is is the highest I've seen in certainly uh, coming up for sort of my sort of 17 18 years of practice um, and and that's always probably been the case um, and I think we are probably through our own barriers maybe reluctant when we're new to sort of ask or be fearful of, of kind of 
stepping out and wanting to ask what may seem like silly, obvious questions, but I would always say ask. Um, people will always kind of stop and, and take the time to kind of try and help because we've all been there. We've all been that new member of staff. And at the moment, it's an unprecedented time to be a newly qualified member of staff. Um, so ask um, people will will stop will help um, and, and direct um, there's this phrases at the moment of there's there's no such thing as an emergency in a pandemic uh, and that's really about you know taking your time out to look after yourself and put your safety procedures in um, with that I think we need to just recalibrate that clock and and as we sort of look towards the future of what that new world is going to look like post sort of COVID-19 and I hope the post worlds we do learn a lot of lessons maybe not just on the the things that we could have done well and like you know we're not necessarily talking about the procurement side or the politics side I'm talking about kind of more global generic issues about lifestyle how we work how we operate um, new opportunities going forwards um, it's an interesting and exciting time for a newly qualified member of staff, but um, certainly I would say to my NQP colleagues is, you know, ask people will take the time to explain you're not alone. You're not doing this on your own. Yeah, Scott, that's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. And I think a lovely message, actually, just to finish off on, because I think you're right. Um, even even as a as a critical care paramedic, there's sometimes and some circumstances that, you know, we need, I just need to cross check. I need to ask. Uh, I, I've been in 20 years. I think you've been in the same. Um, and we still need to ask for help sometimes. And so it's, it's, I think it's never beyond you just to ask if, if you're feeling, feeling overwhelmed or indeed um want want assistance at all so i think that's a fantastic message mate so with that i will finish off listen just thanks for your time today scott i really appreciate it um and thanks for you know all your all your help uh, over the years as, uh, teaching alongside you mate it's been absolutely fantastic so uh, so thanks for today no all the best and we'll speak soon no doubt